My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Brendan Devlin and Shaden Abusale. As a result of the massive, urgent needs created by the COVID-19 pandemic, many governments are spending huge amounts of money in new ways. On the one hand, this has made it clear that governments could always have been doing much more to address people's needs in just and equitable ways. That offers at least a whiff of hope to movements that, with struggle, much more substantial measures along these lines can be made permanent as part of our recovery from the pandemic. At the same time, grassroots movements are under no illusion that the wealthy and corporations will be willing to pay for this crisis without a fight. Inevitably, they'll try to make ordinary people pay by working to impose a massive wave of austerity, meaning cuts, privatization, user fees, deregulation, and more cuts that will be devastating to so many programs and services that ordinary people depend on. Activists and organizers are doing what they can to prepare for this, though in most parts of Canada the exact landscape is still taking shape. Things are a little different in Manitoba. There, austerity attacks have been ongoing since 2016, when the Conservatives under Brian Pallister were elected to a majority government. According to one analyst's overview, Pallister's first three years saw, quote, a barrage of major right-wing changes. Service closures, funding cuts, privatizations, union busting, end quote. The most significant cuts and changes so far have been made in healthcare, but austerity has also touched transportation, education, the environment, housing, and more. And anti-worker measures have included a public sector wage freeze, changes that make unionizing more difficult, and lots of other things. When the cuts started, a collection of community organizations and individuals came together in opposition under the banner of Communities Not Cuts Manitoba. They didn't stop the attacks, but they mobilized significant opposition, at least for a while, though the group became less active as time went by. When Pallister called an early election for September 2019, he won, but his majority was reduced. As COVID-19 hit in the spring of 2020, it became clear that in Manitoba, the government had no intention of waiting before doubling down on its commitment to austerity. Not only has the Pallister government done less than many others to meet the emergency needs created by the pandemic, it has also announced an intention, even in mid-crisis, to make major cuts, ostensibly to cover some of the pandemic-related costs. Critics have argued that this is an example of what author Naomi Klein has named the shock doctrine, in which neoliberal governments use a crisis as a way to push forward a radical agenda that would otherwise be difficult for them to implement. In response, some of the original participants in Communities Not Cuts put out a call to hold an online meeting to revive the group. There was a large and enthusiastic response, including from lots of young activists and organizers based in sectors ranging from climate justice to labor to immigration and settlement to a whole lot more. The obvious question was what exactly could they do given the public health restrictions? The revived Communities Not Cuts group decided that their first action would be what they described as a honkathon and staked sign protest at the Manitoba legislature. They invited opponents of Pallister's cuts to come to the Legislative Assembly in cars and signal their opposition through raucous honking. 
They also invited people to plant staked signs on the legislature grounds, and they held an online teach-in at the same time. Since they held that first action on May 1st, they've been busy. They held a second similar action a couple of weeks later. They've launched a series of open online workshops as a way to both learn more about community needs and to support people in finding ways to get involved. They're working to connect with more groups, organizations, and communities. And of course, they're continuing to figure out new creative ways to protest during the pandemic. Brendan Devlin and Shaden Abusale are students and organizers with Communities Not Cuts Manitoba. We talk about the political situation in Manitoba and about their head start on figuring out what fighting against austerity looks like in the middle of a pandemic. I'm Brendan Devlin. I'm an organizer with Communities Not Cuts, the coalition of community organizations and individuals who came together to oppose the cuts to public services and the public sector being pushed by Brian Pallister in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm calling from Winnipeg, Treaty 1 territory, and I'm a student as well. My name is Shaden Abusaleh. I am also an organizer with Communities Not Cuts in Manitoba from Treaty 1 Territory. I'm currently a student between the University of Ottawa and Carleton. I'm doing a JDMA degree. My involvement with grassroots first started with work around Syrian refugees or Syrian newcomers who were coming in during the influx of newcomers back in 2016. And it mostly just started as a response to what we saw as a need. It was grassroots work and theatre work with newcomer kids to provide them with programming. And I think through the work with that theatre program is just the realisation about the importance of working very sort of authentic sort of grassroots work in terms of getting collective action and organising together. I think it was sort of realised through that and through seeing how just a few individuals who really have similar visions are capable of achieving a lot in spite of what can seem like very large obstacles that can stand in the way. And the type of work with that theatre group was not the same as sort of mobilizing and organizing individuals, but very much so grassroots and working with communities, different community sectors to be able to turn a vision into something that is a reality. And I think I really right now live by that, especially with my studying. I would hope through a legal education to be able to merge affluency in the law with grassroots organizing. And seeing the importance of having that bridge has really helped shape what I want to do in my academic career to translate it into work in the future. For myself, school was also important for me in terms of getting into grassroots organizing. I study political studies, and I think just as I pursued my studies, it became clear to me that the sorts of changes that I wanted to see and the sorts of work that I wanted to do were happening much more at the grassroots than in formal institutions of governance. And yeah, as I pursued school in tandem with organizing, it became just clearer and clearer that what was needed to push politics in a more progressive and sustainable direction is action from below and the grassroots. And so similarly to Shadden, I'm hoping that my knowledge in politics, I can hopefully make that useful to people who are struggling on the ground in real time for progressive change. Lay out some of the political context in Manitoba. Brian Pallister was elected in 2016 after over a decade of NDP governance in Manitoba. He's come to office really since that election in 2016, really concerned very publicly about balancing the budget, reducing the deficit, and eventually presumably eliminating Manitoba's debt. And he's really governed with that as his main priority since he's been elected. So in that sense, his response to COVID really fits into a larger pattern of governance. But yeah, this is sort of his mode of politics. 
He's been a right-wing political figure for quite a long time. He served in the Harper administration, Mm -hmm. and this is in many ways the culmination of his political legacy, pursuing austerity as aggressively as he has in Manitoba, leading up to and in the wake of COVID. This is four years of austerity measures that have impacted all sectors in Manitoba. The most prominent of them is our healthcare. So, for example, if we look at Winnipeg alone, three of our six, half of them, of our emergency rooms or ERs were closed down by the Palestine government. A lot of cutbacks, a lot of layoffs of healthcare workers. Post-secondary education and public education was also impacted. He's increased our tuition and post-secondary education and reduced the budget for the public education sector. Climate policy as well was one of the prominent premiers in the country that was fighting against the carbon tax, for example. And just before the pandemic was looking at reducing funding to the settlement sector under the premise that people, newcomers coming into the province were moving elsewhere to other provinces. And so settlement sector did not need the amount of funding that it was getting and a bunch of layoffs were happening. And a lot of people fear that this idea that removing money from the public sector and using these austerity measures will essentially for example, priming up these nonprofits such as Manitoba Housing to sort of a private sector model to be taken up by private sector. We have had really good, robust public sector services that our Palestine government keeps hacking away at and just making weaker. Like I said, in every single sector, the Palestine government has had a hand in reducing either funding or trying to restructure it. The most one that I can speak for is what he's done to post secondary institutions, for example, where prior to the Palestine government, there was a cap on tuition increases that could not go beyond inflation. And then after the Palestine government came in, they introduced a bill called Bill C-31, where they lifted that cap on the tuition increase. So every single year, post-secondary institutions can increase tuition by up to 6.5%, despite strong student opposition. There were protests even inside the General Assembly where the MLAs meet despite strong opposition and a lot of rallies that were happening outside of the ledge, for example, the Manitoba legislature. The Palestine government was still adamant on running this bill through and having it pass all its readings under the premise as well that, you know, because Manitoban students don't have to pay as much tuition as other students, then we can do with the increase in tuition. And so it always has had this habit of being like, you know what, it's not as bad as you guys think it is to have an excuse for pushing for these austerity measures. And he's doing that more than ever right now during the pandemic. One of the first things his government did was freeze operational grants to child care centers in Manitoba at 2016 levels. People working in child care, like the Manitoba Child Care Association, has been raising concerns about inadequate funding well before the COVID crisis, given that funding freeze at 2016 levels and the fact that the amount that parents pay hasn't increased since 2016. And despite this, the budget in 2020, which came out just before the pandemic really took hold, was still making cuts to child care, despite the fact that we had, even in 2018, over 16,000 children waiting for a spot in child care. The most prominent cuts that we faced have been cuts to our health care. The past government for four years has been weakening our health care. And again, in light of COVID-19, we've seen more than ever the importance of a robust health care system. Like I said, three of our six emergency rooms in Winnipeg were closed down, and then they were alternatively turned into 24-7 urgent care centers. The, he closed five of six of our quick care clinics. He closed a women's clinic. He also removed universal health care for international students. He's also tried to change up physiotherapy, chiropractic, 
a lot of nurses were laid off as well. And again, there has been strong opposition on part of Manitobans and unions to oppose these cuts because they're dangerous. We've had people who have even died in ERs trying just to wait to access a doctor because our government sees that, you know, healthcare is not an important sector to keep investing money in and keep hacking away at that as well. I don't think either of you were involved back then, but tell me what you can about the initial incarnation of Communities Not Cuts that came together in the wake of the election of the Pallister government in 2016. We did start in response because immediately as soon as Pallister was elected, we started off with pushing for an austerity agenda and cutting back on very essential public services, starting with healthcare and what he's been doing to post-secondary institutions and the list was endless. And so it started off with the hope of creating an umbrella organization to bring in other communities that target different groups of Manitobans under sort of one umbrella to fight these cuts. But then it did end up going dormant. And then members of the group who had started it back in 2016 or 2017 sent out a message to several people who were looking to organize in response to COVID-19, sort of a call to ask who had wanted to organize against the cuts that the Pallister government was doing. And a lot of people had responded with enthusiasm. It was a huge Zoom call that a bunch of young organizers from different sectors from unions to climate justice organizers to people who work in the settlement sector to people looking at ways to respond to COVID-19 in a just and equitable way came together to see what we can do and how we can mobilize against the current cuts during COVID. So what has the response of the Pallister government been like to the COVID-19 pandemic? The Pallister government has stuck true to its austerity agenda. What they've done has been using the analogy of a family, wherein he's tried to explain that because some other sectors in our economy are suffering in response to COVID-19, primarily the private sector, other parts of our government and other parts of Manitoba need to also share the brunt to be able to free up money to provide to our frontline workers and our healthcare workers. And so what he's done is he's initially come out mostly only against the public sector services, sent out a memo to government departments, universities, crown corporations, and nonprofits, and told them to propose a reduction in the budget between 10 to up to 30%. And so ultimately, our public sector was facing nearly almost 30% in cuts. And then was very unclear, like lack of transparency, a few weeks later had said that these cuts will not exceed 10%. And then in a single day, cut $860 million out of the public sector, which is the largest cut that the public sector has faced in a single day in Manitoba's history. And so in response to COVID-19, the Pallister government has been claiming that it's just trying to free up money from what it calls non-essential workers. The essential and non-essential divide has proven insufficient in determining what makes an individual essential and what makes someone non-essential and has been laying off public sector employees and has been reducing the operational budget of public sector services. The crux of what he's been doing is uh, prioritizing his political goals of deficit reduction and balancing budgets. It seems to have subordinated economic recovery to these goals. This has been a really constant theme in all his discussions. Like elsewhere in Canada, there have been quite a bit of measures that they've taken, although he's faced quite a bit of 
opposition from even sectors that would be traditionally at least somewhat supportive of conservatives. So he's faced actually quite a bit of, especially in the earlier days of the pandemic, criticisms for having not provided, like other provinces have, supplements to the federal government's income supports, and also not providing support until quite recently to small businesses that weren't able to qualify for federal aid. So he's facing opposition from our groups, but also from less traditional sectors like business sectors. And business people and business professor from the University of Manitoba have been quite vocally outspoken in criticizing the Palestine government's response and inadequate supports that they have provided where they have provided supports. The Palestine government's been saying how it expects to spend nearly $2 billion for healthcare costs due to COVID-19 and has been expecting that that would result in a $5 billion deficit. But this number is not quite accurate because he's estimating that we will be spending $2 billion on healthcare. We will have a $3 billion loss, which will ultimately give us a $5 billion deficit. Other numbers have come out primarily from the Royal Bank of Canada, which estimates that this will actually be $1.5 billion in deficit spending. And keep in mind, healthcare costs not related to COVID-19 have reduced because a lot of people aren't going to hospitals for non-COVID-19 related reasons. So he's using this tactic of throwing out big numbers as an excuse to say that we will be suffering a lot. And there's a lack of transparency and not clarity from the government. He's been dodging questions and is using this sort of tactic, this fear-mongering tactic. But all he's doing is just pushing for an austerity agenda under the guise of a pandemic. And he's weakening our public sector and taking money and reducing government spending while relying on the federal government through the stimulus packages to the federal government, through SERP, through SESP, for example, to pick up the tab. So clearly, Pallister's response hasn't been really organized. It hasn't been direct. And it's been quite erratic and nonsensical. And it's been criticized on all fronts. Many groups of people, even we want to refer to sides of the political spectrum, both sides of the political spectrum have come out to oppose what the Palestine government is doing. Because ultimately, not only is it going to be hurting Manitobans immediately and in the long run, but it's hurting our economy. It makes absolutely no sense to be reducing government spending when we're expecting an oncoming recession. Tell me a bit more about the initial online meeting to revive Communities Not Cuts. Who showed up? What was the conversation like? What was it like doing that kind of work through a video conference rather than an in-person meeting? It was pretty exciting to see that there was a large group of individuals who quickly, like I found out about it probably, I think the same day, so did many people, where the folks with CNC had wanted to organize a response to the cuts as May Day was coming up. So it's a Saturday, just a week before the honkathon that we ended up doing. And there were different folks from different groups of different organizers who shared what they thought would be the best way to respond to what's been going on. It was a lot of people sharing their opinions, a lot of voting in like little tiny polls. And it was pretty impressive how quickly folks came together in such a short time and pulled this off and brought out a large number of Manitobans to the legislature to protest the cuts. I had a similar experience. I missed that initial first big Zoom call, but got involved later that week. And I I agree it was quite exciting because everything was moving very quickly. There were a lot of people who were very eager to see any kind of organized response. So people were just very eager to pick up tasks. And it allowed us to set up this honkathon and prepare quite a bit ahead of time and organize different actions and lay the foundation for more organizing, which we want to be doing. Those initial weeks laid the foundation for a longer term anti-austerity struggle in Manitoba. 
Tell me more about that initial action on May Day. We organized on May Day what we call the Honkathon and Stake Sign Protest. Given social distancing protocols that are involved, we obviously can have a typical rally at the ledge. So we had to think about how we could have a vocal show of opposition to these cuts without that. And so what we decided to do is invite as many people as possible to come to the ledge with their cars, stay in their cars, and effectively honk incessantly outside the legislative building. So people came in cars, some people came by foot, some people came on bikes, and it was very noisy. There were some instruments around. And that was the main event. We also had staked signs that different people from around Winnipeg had made. We encouraged everyone, even if they couldn't come, to make a sign. And we arranged to pick up and transport those signs to the ledge so that we could stake them in the gardens at the legislative building in Manitoba. And then we also had a webinar, like a live stream webinar in lieu of people speaking as they normally would at a rally. We organized a webinar that went for the duration of the action that people could tune into as they're driving around honking and also that they could tune into from home. And I really encourage anyone who wants to know more about what's going on in Manitoba right now, those live streams are archived on our Facebook page and they will be on our website soon. They're probably some of the most informative video segments discussing just how widespread the effects of these cuts will be and how devastating they could possibly be from child poverty in Winnipeg to you know addressing climate change in Manitoba to housing justice to all sorts of other services that will be affected. And since that initial action, which of course wasn't that long ago, what other sorts of things has the group been doing? At the moment, we're focused, I think, especially on building our capacity and trying to reach out and get input from the various communities into the work that we're doing. Because we did organize a second honkathon, and similarly, we had a stake sign protest as well. We had another live stream with a whole new set of speakers. This one was for when the House was in session. So they could hear us from inside the legislative chamber and we will be organizing more honkathons. And at the moment, we're also hosting workshops online for people who want to plug into this for us to learn sort of what the needs of the community are and also for people who have ideas about how we can continue organizing in the future to be able to get plugged into this organizing. One of the things that Communities Not Cuts is trying to work in parallel to things like the Honkathon and these types of actions is to create a community discussion and start a community discussion around what Manitobans would like to see as a just and equitable response to COVID-19 and recovery from COVID-19. Because ultimately, one of the things that we are also concerned about is how what the pastor government is doing is going to extremely weaken Manitoba's ability to recover from this pandemic. I next asked them about what the conversation has been like within the group in terms of the openings and the possibilities for taking action, given the public health restrictions, physical distancing, the ongoing risks of COVID, and so on. But keep in mind that this interview was recorded before the current continent-wide upsurge in action against anti-Black racism and police brutality, which has definitely changed the conversation about taking action in this moment. I think the logistics team with CNC has done a really good job in terms of trying to figure out how to mobilize folks and get people to come to the legislature while maintaining social distancing. We've had a lot of these discussions about, for example, how we felt about having cars come out, how we felt about having people on bikes. What if we had people on foot? What we had to set up marshals, for example, and what marshals should do. One of the things that we learned from our first honkathon to our second honkathon is making sure that people who live in the buildings and houses around the Manitoba legislature were informed beforehand that there was going to be a honkathon from noon to one, for example. And so we made sure that we just put up posters around these neighborhoods. One of the things that we discussed is flyer handouts 
And we discussed that, you know, that wasn't something that we would be doing. We would be letting anyone or even ourselves hand out flyers to cars. We discussed what we would do if somebody like would leave their car to want to put a poster up, how we would deal with that. So I think these discussions constantly around how to be able to have people come out and ask people to leave their homes, for example, during a pandemic were at the forefront of the logistical discussions, both within the logistics team that was later brought to the larger CNC team to discuss. Yeah, the Honkathon was one of the initial answers that we had for that. And then the webinar actually came later on after the idea for the Honkathon. And some of the logistics organizers organized it very, very quickly because we couldn't, you know, for example, have people speaking at a rally and like passing the mic to one another or anything like that. And so the solution we thought was to host an online webinar, which I think actually ended up being probably more informative than a lot of speakers at rallies can be and also in itself quite engaging. We're still as a group grappling with that as well. I think there's an appetite to do more honkathons, but there's also an appetite to go beyond honkathons. And we're hoping that these workshops will provide fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, and we're eager to move forward. And in terms of those workshops, what sort of content do they have and who's participating in them? I can't stress enough that we're really trying to get anybody and everybody who's interested, whether you have a background in organizing or not. We've been reaching out to a lot of partner groups, like a lot of groups have collaborated with us to one extent or another in organizing these things. So we tap them to get some of their organizers, but also just people who are interested in the community. What we're seeing right now in Manitoba is that the opposition to Brian Pallister's response to this is quite widespread. And what we're hoping to do with these workshops is take some initial steps to organize that widespread opposition and bring people into our fold to whatever extent they're comfortable with. I mean, of course, people face a lot of obstacles in organizing during COVID-19 because of social distancing, but also for a whole host of other reasons. So one of the things we try to emphasize is that different people can play different roles in organizing. So we feel like we have some momentum after these honkathons. So the goal of these workshops is to sort of capture that and harness it and build off of that momentum in an organized way. One of the things also that we've tried to grapple with with CNC is try to figure out even how we reach a consensus around, say, our demands and our messaging and how we want that to look like. These questions cannot be answered by one or two of the organizers, but need the input, especially considering that CNC aims to be a coalition of community organizations and community organizers. One of our hopes is to, for example, put together a list of demands from different community groups that target different communities within Manitoba to ask what their demands do look like, COVID-19 demands, post-COVID-19 demands and to discuss how, as an organization and as a coalition, we would like to continue how we would have these discussions around how we want to protest these unjust systems, how we want to advocate for a fair and equitable government response, how we want to continue helping others, and how we want to plan for a just future. We don't have the answer of how to best serve each and every community, but we would like to bring folks together to resist. You have been listening to my interview with Shaden Abusaleh and Brendan Devlin of Communities Not Cuts Manitoba. To learn more about their work, go to cncmanitoba.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.